Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast from the 22nd annual ANZIC CTG meeting held in the beautiful town of Noosa Heads in Queensland, Australia. On today's podcast, I'll be chatting with renowned intensivist researcher Dr Todd Rice, who has presented at this meeting on the issue of pragmatic trials. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Todd, uh, you've given a presentation this week on pragmatic trials, so I guess the obvious place to start is what is a pragmatic trial? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's many different definitions out there, but the, the way I view uh, pragmatic trials are trials that are done with, uh, within kind of the clinical care that's provided to patients and with few, hopefully none, uh, things that are done for research only, so no interventions that are only research interventions. They're all part of care that's given to patients. No special data collection. It's all data that are already collected as part of a patient's care. Um, and those uh, um, uh, features of the trial are all kind of already being done. Uh, and then the pragmatic part is, is that we kind of use what's already being done uh, to do the study and try and, you know, understand uh uh, the different processes and, and uh, effects of them. So why do we use them? What are the advantages in terms of a research outcome? Yeah, the, I, well, I think there are a couple of advantages. The, the, the two biggest are um, uh, enrollment efficiency. So by, by doing pragmatic trials and using um, the aspects that are already part of clinical care, uh, we are able to enroll larger numbers of patients in, you know, considerably shorter periods of time. Um, and, you know, we're looking at, for many pragmatic trials, enrolling hundreds of patients a month compared to traditional explanatory trials or traditional randomized trials where, you know, we're, we'll enroll 15, 20. Sometimes we do really well and enroll 40 patients in a month. Um, but the, the efficiency in enrollment is just considerable uh, for the pragmatic trials. And then the other actual efficiency is the cost efficiency. Since a lot of this is already being done in the care of the patient, uh, you don't have to spend extra money to get somebody to specially collect outcomes or go to the patient's bedside and get a, a special questionnaire that's being done just for research and is not already being done by the clinical team. So the two sort of biggest advantages are, are efficiencies. One is enrollment efficiency, and the second is that they're just uh, much more cost-efficient. In some editorials, it's been raised that the, the pragmatic trial is effectively a, a trade-off between internal validity of an exploratory trial or an explanatory trial yeah. with the external validity. How much more valid are pragmatic trials in terms of their external validity? Yeah, considerable. That's another advantage of them. They, they, because in general, they have a broad inclusion uh, and exclusion criteria and enroll broad populations, they tend to be much more um, able to be extrapolated to, you know, just general care populations as opposed to the usual uh, very highly selective population for explanatory trials. So, um, you know, part of that is, is the enrollment efficiency that you're, you're, you know, using broad inclusion exclusion criteria and you're able to enroll efficiently then, but you get, you get sort of the, uh, benefit on the backside of then the results are broadly applicable to the population as opposed to, you know, just the, the group of patients that met these specific, you know, X number of inclusion criteria that are way more common in explanatory trials. 
Todd, you recently wrote an editorial about the peptic trial, which was released just recently, where you highlighted yeah. some of the limitations of pragmatic trials. What are the sorts of things that you see as problematic with these sorts of trials? Yeah, so, uh, you know, my my clinical trials training, I've always been taught there there is no such thing as a perfect trial. Uh, every trial has its pros and its cons, and and what you do is that you understand those, and then you uh, you know are willing to accept and deal with the the cons of the trials that you choose, and and you know potential cons of of the pragmatic trials are that because we're sort of uh, relying on the backs of a lot of the clinical providers and the clinical care that's provided, um, we we uh, are at risk for uh, them doing exceptions to the, the um, treatment strategy or the testing strategy. So, for example, in peptic, there's a strategy of sort of a default proton pump inhibitor strategy for stress ulcer prophylaxis versus H2 receptor blocker. Um, but there was the opportunity for the bedside clinician who was sort of caring for the patient to override that and say, you know, uh, I'm I'm smarter, uh, and I know that this patient needs one or the other, and therefore I'm going to give them that, even though that may not be the default strategy. And so there's some risk for what I call loss to, loss of fidelity to the actual strategy being tested. Um, and uh, um, because of that, it sometimes makes it hard to um, extrapolate the results to the specific treatment as opposed to being left with this treatment strategy resulted in this. Uh, oftentimes, that, that loss of fidelity isn't uh, a lot, uh, and so therefore there's not really much difference between the treatment strategy and the specific treatment intervention because they're, they're pretty um, synonymous and, and uh, they're applied pretty similarly in the, in the study um, as it was done. But occasionally, uh, if there's a lot of sort of off-strategy use of, of medicines, then um, the result of the trial really is, is that trying to use this strategy, not necessarily the specific intervention, but the strategy resulted in these results. Uh, and it's a little harder to know if it's specific to the specific intervention uh, or not. The study populations in pragmatic trials seem to be a lot more heterogeneous than in explanatory trials. What sort of impact does this have on your ability to detect signal? Yeah, so I think there's I think there's a a, a big plus of this and a big con of this. Uh, and you you asked about the con, which is is that uh, when you have this heterogeneous population, uh, it often dilutes the signal. Um, and in fact, in some of these. Um, trials, the, the um, uh, loss of fidelity or the, the um, using of the non-treatment strategy um, biases us towards the null, meaning it makes that signal even harder and harder to find. Um, this, is, this is somewhat difficult because in a, most of the pragmatic trials, we're studying things that are already done in practice and hopefully don't have a huge difference between them as it, as it is to begin with. So we're looking for a really small signal. And then many of the, the sort of risks of the trial bias us towards ha having an even small, being able to see an even smaller signal than, than um, the small signal that we're looking for. The, the plus side of actually doing this is, is that what it does is it allows, a, in a relatively efficient manner, a large number of patients from specific subgroups 
to be enrolled so that you can actually look at uh, whether or not that treatment effect is different for that subgroup. So, for example, in peptic trial that has, you know, 27,000 patients, uh, we would expect if it's a normal critical care uh, population that a quarter to a third of those would have would have sepsis. So suddenly, if that's the case, you've got seven or eight or nine thousand sepsis patients in a trial, uh, and you could look at that and see if the effect is uh, what if it's different than the overall effect and what the effect actually is in that group of population, that group of sepsis patients. So there's there's you know a downside uh, because it it can uh, dilute the treatment effect a little bit uh, that that heterogeneity, but but there's also a plus side in the fact that it allows us real sample size for many subgroups that we think are important and that we're interested in. One of the other criticisms or limitations that's been pointed out is that um, an explanatory trial has a stronger ability, I guess, to be able to look under the mechanisms of of some of the findings. Um, How do you see that playing out? Yeah, so that's a, a great point. And the mechanistic component of trials is, is really interesting. So, um, uh, obviously, you know, we are scientists and we love to know the mechanism and the mechanistic reason for, for why something works or might not work. Um, I'm, I'm a very pragmatic sort of, uh, clinician also. And, uh, many times I'm not sure I care about the mechanism. Um, if I'm fairly confident in the result and the mechanism can actually build confidence in the result. So if uh, there's a number of critical care trials, even explanatory trials that have had a positive result and the mechanism has been a little unclear and in those in general, people are a little less accepting of the results than in the ones where there's a clear mechanism. It makes biologic sense. And you say, Oh yeah, this, this occurred through this. So therefore it makes sense that this is the effect that we've seen. So, um, the mechanism part of it is really, really, really easy or really interesting in that, um, in that it, it uh, can strengthen the results because it can uh, increase confidence that those results are real and not just a spurious finding. But if you have enough data, even without a mechanism, so you have a few or multiple studies that are showing the same thing, the pragmatic clinical side of me would say, uh, it may not be that important that we understand the mechanism. We should change our practice because um, even if we don't know what the mechanism is, if the patient's getting better outcomes, we should do we should do uh, what what gives them the better outcomes. Pragmatic trials are difficult in times because the pragmatic nature of them often uh, doesn't allow us to collect data to truly understand the mechanism. So many times the mechanism is through a special biomarker or uh, uh, a mechanistic uh, pathway that there aren't data readily available already in the care of the patient or the collection of, of the outcomes from that patient. And so it would require specific research data collection to do it. And, you know, in general, we avoid that in the pragmatic trials because that's what we're trying to avoid in the pragmatic trials. So there's, there's a little bit of a tension there um, that oftentimes with the pragmatic trials, we just don't have the data available to truly explore the mechanism. Todd, we've obviously focused on some of the limitations, but as you said earlier, um, every trial has its strengths and this this trial type certainly has significant advantages. So are there ways that we can mitigate some of the limitations on pragmatic trials? Yeah, I think there's a a lot of ways we can, and I think we're getting smarter and and doing this better. And I I, I should say, 
I may have said this at the beginning. From from my standpoint, this is this is the future of critical care research. Uh, you know, every once in a blue moon, we hit a home run, find a new treatment or a novel drug that we think is going to help our uh, critically ill patients. But largely in the last couple of decades, the uh, improvement in the care of patients uh, in the ICUs has come from us better understanding what we're doing and the care that we're providing on an everyday basis. And, you know, these pragmatic trials are going to help us better understand that. So, you know, I am wildly enthusiastic about these trials. And uh, I think they're the, the wave of the future and how we're going to improve the, the patient outcomes. Things that, that we've tried to do to try and uh, try and minimize some of the, the cons of them are that, you know, we've gauged and tried to uh, um, gauge equipoise and tried to better educate our clinician providers to decrease sort of that off uh, strategy um, treatment of the patient that's not uh, according to the study protocol. Um, so that's that's sort of been it. We've we've um, found ways to uh, uh, enroll all of the patients and not have any exclusion criteria. Um, we've found ways for uh, both uh, electronic automated data collection and, in addition, we've you know uh, learned new statistical te- techniques that help us kind of apply sensitivity analyses to some of these complicating and confounding factors in pragmatic trials. Um, we've, we've done things like the study design that we do cluster crossover instead of just cluster, which increases the power and therefore uh, our ability to detect, you know, smaller and smaller signal sizes. And so really, you know, in the last um, five years, seven years or so, we've made pretty good headway in, in addressing some of these uh, inherent problems with pragmatic trials to to make them more rigorous, more robust, uh, and you know even give us give us more confident answers. Todd, so just finally, um, you're involved with something called the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. Can you tell us briefly about what yeah. this group does? Yeah, so this is this is a group of uh, it started with sort of some trainees of mine. Uh, at Vanderbilt, and then we all kind of went to different places, or they left Vanderbilt, went to different places. So we had kind of multi centers involved, and the goal really was to do kind of what we've talked about, which was there are questions that we all have in everyday practice of our patients. Why do we do this, or or I do it this way, and somebody else does it that way, and I don't know which of those ways is best. And so we're trying to set up a, a network, a research group that actually could. Um, uh, identify some of those variabilities in care and then actually study them and try and improve the care of our patients just by understanding uh, which of the few ways that clinicians normally do some treatment or some procedure, um, which of those was better, and then apply it to the patients. Um, it's all largely done with uh, minimal funding, uh, and it's done from a lot of uh, volunteerism and, and people giving their time to to, you know, design the studies and, and enroll patients and that sort of stuff. But um, people have done that because these are, these are questions that people recognize, investigators recognize, are important questions uh, that need answers and are, are um, kind of low-hanging fruit for improving the care of our, our critically ill patients. Todd Rice, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and for sharing your insights uh, both with the podcast audience and at the conference this week. Thanks for having me. It was a great discussion. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. For more great podcasts just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.